Good morning. Let's stand for the reading of the word. This is Colossians 2, verses 13 through 19. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Yeah, you may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, welcome to Park Hill Church. My name is Evan Wickham, and my wife Sandy and I have the honor, it's a joy, really, to lead this church together. And we are in the book of Colossians, as you just read. So open up to chapter 2. We're just about halfway through the book on Sunday mornings. Um, Just a little bit of background, and then I'll let you know where we're going. Colossians is a, is a letter, an ancient letter, written by the Apostle Paul to a young church, kind of like this church, we're only five years old, that's young, uh, in the ancient city of Colossae, which was a city a lot, in many ways, like San Diego. Colossae had pluralism and spiritual syncretism all over the place. What does that mean? It means, let's make a soup of all our favorite ideas and just call it one thing. And we just say yes to all the ideas. That's pluralism, it's syncretism, that's Colossae. And honestly, it's Western cities like San Diego. Um, And also, it was a very wealthy city which created economic disparity. There were very rich, rich, and poor, poor. And again, we see this in our immediate city. And this little church was looking around at their big city, and they're like, who are we? Who are we to say that our little community is the one that's following the true Lord, that we have the truth? Who are we to say that we have the truth? And if we do have the truth, and if our Lord is truly the king of the universe in person, in Jesus, then how do we do this thing called following him? And how do we mature into Christ-likeness? Because it seems like this king, this Jesus, wants us to be like him. So how do we do that? And that's why Paul writes this letter, to show the church, yes, Jesus is the Lord of the universe, and yes, this Lord's desire is that his family would become like him. The church would become like him. Paul's words, fully mature in Christ. So they're like, how do we do this? So Paul writes. In chapter one, Paul lifts up Jesus as the most central figure you can imagine. He is in charge. He's sovereign, which means he is in charge of the cosmos. And then chapter two, Paul basically says, since Jesus is in charge, and since he is the ultimate reality behind all of the universe, that means all knowledge worth knowing and all wisdom worth having is ultimately rooted in him because everything good, true, and beautiful came from him and is returning to him. You know that phrase, all truth is God's truth? Paul's like, that's actually a true statement because Jesus is reality. And then later on, we're going to see in chapter 3 that Paul's going to get specific on what life looks like when it's becoming like Jesus. And he gets all the way down into their sexuality and their money and in the way they even use language. He talks about speech in the way of Jesus. And he talks about how to live in a home, in a household with relationships. He talks about marriage and children and and people living in your house with you and how that should look like Jesus. 
But today, before Paul drills down into the specifics, today he reminds us of the big picture, and it's the gospel. And I come to this text, I come to this day, you know, whatever day it is, March, first day of March, first Sunday of March, talking about the gospel, and I come with trepidation whenever I'm at a text that so clearly unpacks the, the depth of the good news, I get really, I feel sober, I feel sobered, I feel very hesitant to, to be the one, because when, when I open my mouth and speak the gospel, I'm not afraid of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I just realize the power of the gospel to, 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 to undermine false ideologies and to break the power of sin and to actually rescue us from death. And I'm speaking these words. I have a microphone in my hand and the gospel is being, is being, it's proceeding from my mouth and it just humbles me. It completely baffles me that God uses me to do this. And so I just want you to know that I'm, I'm on holy ground here and I wanna invite you to listen well because, because Paul's gonna, he's gonna give you the good news as it relates to your very private person. Um, and it's in the middle of Colossians. So it's, it's literally the center of Colossians is the gospel. The middle, like the crease in the middle of the book. And, and, and to, so today and next Sunday, today is what the cross means for us, and next Sunday is what the resurrection means for us. This is what Paul is doing here in the middle of the book. So remember the illustration I used from, like, I don't know, a month or two ago at the beginning of Colossians. Remember the illustration of, like, a map in an airport or in the mall? The directory, when you're lost, you have to get from gate 15B to gate 56E, and you've never been to this airport, and you're scared, and there's scary TSA agents everywhere, and you don't know where to go. You've never been, London Heathrow. By the way, the picture that I showed was London Heathrow. If you've never been there, it's a scary place. And, and, and you need a directory. So you, so you go to the map, and you look for what? The little red dot that says, you are here. And when you see where you are, suddenly there's a settledness. And this is what Paul does for us. This is the you are here dot on the map of reality. And it's the gospel and it shows us where we're at. And so here, here's where we're at. You ready? Uh, Colossians 2 verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, weird phrase, I'll explain what that means, when you were dead and all that, God made you alive with Christ. God made you alive with Christ. So we're locating ourselves right now. You, this is the you are here. As a follower of Jesus, if you've placed your trust in Jesus and you've been baptized and said in front of the church, like, this is, this is my life coming under the authority of Christ. I believe Jesus is the crucified, risen, exalted Lord of the world. And and I receive his forgiveness for my sins. Jesus is the authority of my life now, and his authority comes to me through the scriptures and with the church here. When you say that, you become a follower of Jesus, and when you say that, that becomes true about you. Can you put that verse back up? Because I want it to kind of soak into our eyes. As a follower of Jesus, that was your former condition. You were dead. That's the word Paul uses, you were dead. What does that mean, I was dead? My heart was beating in my chest. I, I was never dead. I've never been dead. I'm here. I'm alive. What he means is that deadness, it means you're, you were ultimately incapable of saving yourself, unable to raise yourself up out of your sin. Your sin cycle had you. You're powerless to survive death. Before God got to you, eternal death was the only logical outcome for you. Why? Paul gives two reasons there. You were dead, number one, in your sins. What's sin? I love how uh, theologian Cornelius Plantinga, he uh, defines sin famously as the culpable violation of shalom. So when God created the world, he created it good and full of shalom, wholeness, peace, all relationships rightly ordered with God, others, yourself, and the rest of creation. Everything was firing on all cylinders in perfect peace. Sounds amazing. It's what we long for. Sin is when humans are res the responsible party for breaking those relationships with God, others, self, and creation. 
the culpable violation of shalom. That's wrongdoing. And that's what keeps humanity from belonging to God, from belonging to God. That's sin. It's not a God problem. It's an us problem. It's sin that keeps us from belonging to God. And the second thing, if you could just, sorry, I'm, I didn't, I'm surprising the person. Can you put the, the verse back up on the screen again? So your sins. And the second thing that means you're dead is that you're dead in your uncircumcision of your flesh. Obviously, that means, in that day, it means Gentile. You're not a Jewish family member of Yahweh, which is a human-to-human broken relationship. And there's nothing you can do to fix that aside from becoming Jewish, actually getting circumcised. And so, so your sins keep you from belonging to God. Your uncircumcision, uncircumcision keeps you from belonging to other humans. And because of this, you are dead in Paul's language. Dead to God, dead to people. There's nothing we could do to fix that on ourselves, You guys, this is such an important part of the good news. I know it doesn't sound like good news. Being dead is not good news. But this is an important part of the good news. You guys, we were once dead in our sins. How often do we remind ourselves of this? We were once dead in our sins. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not where the gospel starts. The gospel starts on page one of the Bible. What's page one? The humans, male and female, image bearers of Christ, created good, right? In the Garden of Eden, humans were created full of dignity as God's partners in the garden. That's page one of the Bible, and it's the starting place of the gospel. You're created good, and you still bear that good image. Being human means all humans, no matter race, color, class, tribe, gender, all humans bear the good image of God, page one of the Bible, which means every single human being who's ever lived is full of inherent dignity and value and is worthy of love. It's page one of the Bible. That's where the gospel begins, you guys. The gospel does not begin on page three with us as fallen sinners. It begins on page one with us created for partnership with God. But it doesn't take us long to get to page three, right? It takes literally three pages for us to Fall, and that's the theological word for it. It's the, it's the fall of humanity. What is that? Well, it's, we're already, by page three, we're already disobeying God and trying to define good and evil apart from the creator. The creator has, he has the right to define what's true and good and beautiful. But at the fall, humans say, no, thank you very much. We will take that right to ourselves. We will define what's good and evil apart from our creator, hence the fall, hence the cycle of sin. Because what happens, what happens when imperfect non-creators, when us created beings start to define what's good and evil imperfectly? Well, then we continue to cycle based on our own warped definition of what's good and true and beautiful, and we inherently can't break it. That is the fall. That cyclical, that vicious cycle of sin is the fall. This is all of our states. This is all of our former conditions. And we quickly find ourselves incapable of reconnecting with God and belonging to his family, the fall. And you guys, the fall, it, it, it is so real. We see evidence of the fall almost everywhere we look today, not just in internet headlines, but in my own heart, right? In the selfish ways I treat my wife. Like, I know what it feels, I know what love is because I want it. I want to be treated with unconditional love. I know what it is when I get it. So the question is, why don't I always consistently give it? I'm fallen. This is why. Why is it so hard for me to disadvantage myself for the advantage of others? The answer is I'm fallen. I'm good and fallen. I am both. I am mixture. You are mixture. And because of this fallen mixture state, because it's so pervasive throughout human society and in my own mixed heart motives, I was 100% incapable of self-rescue. It's a cycle I cannot break. You cannot break it. 
incapable of reconnecting fully with God and with other people. In Paul's words, this is how he sums it up, we were dead because of sins and uncircumcision from God and others. We, we, we cannot fully belong in and of ourselves. But here's the point of the passage. Here's why it's good news. This is no longer the case, right? But no longer. God has chosen to act. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, God initiated your rescue. God made you alive together with Christ. What does that mean? Alive together with Christ. It means just as Christ was given life by God out of the grave, so too the Colossians and now the San Diegans who trust in Jesus raise up into new life together because Christ rose. Which means, that last line, it means your record of sin was wiped clean. Your record of sin was wiped clean. How exactly did this happen? Keep reading. Look at verse 13 here. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I feel like... I feel like, especially after Loritz was here, I like wanna, I wanna yes and amen for that verse. I want, I want like a, I want a response. That, we could go for a year on that verse alone. He forgave us all our sins. He forgave us all our sins, how? Well, two ways in that verse. Let's keep that verse up for a while. He forgave us all our sins. Number one, he canceled your sin debt. He canceled your sin debt. To describe how sin works, Paul uses the metaphor of a handwritten document that says you owe a sin debt, like a bill. How many of you have ever seen a bill for a debt? Not very many people owe money to anyone right now in this room. No mortgages, no auto loans. That's awesome. This is the metaphor Paul uses, a bill on paper that says that you owe money. Did you know the scriptures view our sin as debt? Did you know this? If you're new to Jesus or the church, this could be like, huh, that's surprising. Why would God speak of our sin in terms of debts and owing him or whatever? No, no, listen. How, how many of you have heard the Lord's prayer? Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And what's the next part? Forgive us our debts. Matthew's gospel's version of the prayer says, forgive us our debts. What does Luke's gospel say? Forgive us our trespasses or sins. Yep, they're different words. Matthew says, forgive us our debts. Luke's version says, forgive us our sins. Which one's right? The answer is yes, right? Both. Both are right. The, the gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, are making a point. Our sin is debt. It's synonymous. It's a debt we rightfully owe God and we owe sin debt to people. Because what's the second part of the prayer? Forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors, people who owe us. We forgive because we've been forgiven. This is that vertical horizontal relationship We've been forgiven, so we become forgivers. We owed a debt that we were forgiven. Now we forgive debts owed us. Romans 6.23 even says, Paul says, the payment for sin is death. The debt is a death debt. That's how you pay it. This does not feel like good news right now, does it? This is dark stuff. Now let's think about debt, though. Like I said, there's many different kinds of debt. You know, think of student debt or car loans. They're very different. But what's one thing all debt has in common? So at, at the first gathering, someone shouted out, interest. And, and, I, and I wasn't expecting that. I don't have that written in my notes. But that's true. I just don't know how to preach that. I don't know what that means. What I was looking for is 
every debt has in common is a collection date, right? There's a due date, and then there's a collection. And there is going to be a collection day for the sin debts of humanity. The scriptures call this the day of the Lord. According to the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, the day of the Lord is mentioned close to 200 times in the Bible. And my friends, there will come a day when Jesus will return, not just as an all-loving king, although that is who he is, but also as a perfectly fair, just judge. And he's coming to collect on Satan, sin, and death. And everyone who has aligned themselves with those destructive and dehumanizing ways. Jesus will balance the scales of the universe, you guys. The ancient Jewish people looked forward to this because they knew their status was beloved family of God and they knew that their sin debt was canceled and that God would make all sad things come untrue and right every wrong and bring down arrogant mountains and lift up oppressed valleys. They longed for this day. But listen, if you're not on Yahweh's side, and he does have a side, then you're on the side of darkness, and Yahweh will come in Christ on the day of the Lord at the end of current history, and he will collect, God through Christ will collect the true debt He'll collect on it at the day of the Lord, which is really, really bad news for Satan and sin and everyone who doesn't trust in Jesus. But it's really good news for true followers of Jesus because for us, he canceled our bill. He canceled our bill of sin debt completely. You guys, the account is wiped clean, zeroed out. No red negative numbers anymore. It used, yes, that is so good. I, this is, must be something we celebrate. This has to be the source of our joy. And so, so it, the debt, the red numbers, used to stand against us and condemn us. To use Paul's language, they stood against us. They pointed at you and said, you owe a specific amount. And, and it condemned you. Because collection day, you will not have deep enough pockets to balance it out. You can't. You're stuck in the cycle. We were, this is our former condition. But listen, God took it away and nailed it to the cross. He nailed your sin debt to the cross completely. Right now, just to bring this home a little bit, right now the U.S. Supreme Court is deciding on debt forgiveness, right? The U.S. Supreme Court is deciding whether or not to cancel student debt for more than 26 million people across America. Millions of individuals in America could receive up to $20,000 of student loan debt, completely canceled, forgiven. If the Supreme Court in June, I think they might decide by June, if the Supreme Court gives a green light, I don't know how many million, I don't know how many billions that will be. Now listen. Regardless of your politics or your personal feelings on what's fair, on the issue, let's face it, Jesus followers should be the last people to have a problem with unearned debt forgiveness. Because Jesus followers should know better than anyone in the world that our deepest debt, the debt that is so meaningful it makes all the other debts meaningless, our sin debt has been completely and very unfairly canceled. None of us deserved our debt forgiveness. This is why grace is a scandal, my friends. And what's more, we look forward to the day of the Lord when the, the just, all-loving collector who is all holy, Jesus Christ, when it's not just our sin debt of what we did wrong, but it's every debt. Every debt will be unfairly forgiven us. And God raises all our dead bodies into resurrection life in the new heavens and new earth. You guys, this is why we come to church. This is why we place our hope in the risen Lord and eat and drink a physical meal every week. Take the bread and cup. We take his broken body into our broken bodies because he's making the broken body of the church more and more whole in an unearned, unfairly, lavishly loving way. Because we're confident that he's going to finish this job. He's going to finish us. He's going to complete this work. And it's totally unearned. 
It's grace. Last week, Brian Loritz made a similar point. This is grace. Again, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Underlined cross. Again, having disarmed powers and authorities, he publicly shamed Satan, triumphing over them by the cross. This double mention of the cross, I think it's the next slide where I actually have it underlined. Yeah, yeah. See that? There's two mentions of the cross. This is like double explicit rated R ancient language is what he's doing here. The cross was so deeply offensive. Not even the Romans who invented crucifixion would talk about crucifixion in their homes. This was foul language. Paul is being intentionally offensive here to shock the first readers. Today we have cross necklaces that are pretty. Back then they wouldn't ever wear a cross on their bodies. Because for Paul, the cross isn't just a physical place where Jesus died to overcome sin. The cross has its own power. It's not just a place where our sins were forgiven once, forever, but it actually continues to have a message. See, the Romans used the cross to abandon people, to weaken people, to tear apart families. If your child grew up to be a crucified person, your family would never be regarded the same by society. The Romans knew this. They used it as a, the, the most egregious public shaming device. But now, God chose the cross to reveal true wisdom and power through his own son. See, Paul could have just said, Jesus died to forgive your sins, so your debt is canceled, your sin debt is canceled, because Jesus died to forgive your sins, which is true, but that's general. Paul didn't speak generally. He got more specific and more offensive, and he would have been right. Jesus did die to forgive our sins, but by specifically mentioning this cross and that God nailed your sin to that cross, your wrongdoings are on public display. Paul's not just talking about forgiveness. He's, he's pointing to a deeper problem. And here's the problem. Our minds, our human reasoning, the way we have, the way our outlook has been so shaped by sin that we actually need a full reprogramming. We need a whole new operating system for living in the world. And the cross is the, is the source of this operating system. We need to let the message and power of the cross reconfigure how we navigate reality. What does this mean? Well, here, here's what this looks like. In direct opposition to our natural human logic of celebrity, Boasting, self-promotion. We don't see that anywhere in our culture. Celebrity, self-promotion. Narcissistic noise. Or how about our American value of keeping my stuff for my own comfort? Against all that, Paul sees the only true source of glory and boasting in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, where he silently absorbed our shame, nakedness, sin, and death on our behalf, giving up his own comfort for the sake of the world, that's how we're supposed to triumph? That's how we're supposed to get ahead now? Paul's like, yeah, this is the new OS. This is the new operating system of humanity, actually the way humans were designed to run. For Paul, that's the power of the cross, not just a place where our sins are forgiven, but a whole new system that humans were always designed for. And when we're living in the kingdom, living cross-shaped lives, we then can see the old way of life for the corruption that it is, incompatible with the kingdom of God. What does this practically mean? Well, because God nailed Evan Wickham's sin to the cross, Because God nailed my sin to Jesus' public shaming tool, now when I'm cursed, instead of retaliating, I bless back. That's just how we do. When someone slaps me on the right side of my face, we offer our, here's my left side. It's a non-retaliation ethic. 
When someone wants to sue the shirt off your back, you you say, oh, here's my coat too. When someone asks you, hey, can you help me travel one mile? I know it's really inconvenient. You say, no, how about two miles? And that's just four examples from Jesus explicitly from his own mouth. I didn't make those up for this sermon. Matthew 5, 40. And that's so very un-American, you guys. And I'm sure each of us could make a list of what it looks like for me personally to live a cross-shaped life. Like, like when I get blasted on social media, I refuse to respond in kind. I just don't. Or I shouldn't. Not in the kingdom. Not in the system of the cross. A friend of mine, a uh, pastor in New York, John Tyson, he said, the Christian call to online influence these days is to be crucified in public and never respond in kind. That is Christian online influence. Or or when I'm misunderstood, there's nothing more frustrating than being misunderstood for me. I'm like, if I could just get you the right amount of facts about myself, you'll see the context was not what you heard or whatever, which is so emotionally unhealthy and so not empathetic. But few things are more frustrating than being misunderstood. Forget about social media. What about family, like friends, that just, you feel like they got the wrong picture. And I know I could defend myself, or I know it's because they're kind of emotionally unstable, at least I think they are. And if they only knew more about me, or if they knew where I'm coming from, if I give more context, but instead I, I don't respond defensively. Instead I respond with empathy, not to be understood, but to understand as St. Francis prayed. And I just listen instead of speak and own everything, even more than I should own, I own. The way of the cross. Following Jesus is hard. I could go on, but here's the point. When Paul says the cross, he's always referring to a life, not just the place where your sins were wiped out, It is that, but it's also the shape of our life moving forward as a forgiven, mature child of God in the world. You guys, when we understand this, then the the rest of the gospel makes sense. Look at verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities. You guys, the powers and authorities were trying to shame Jesus. Last thing they expected was Jesus to say, hey, do it to my other cheek too. And by the way, Father, forgive them. Satan didn't know what to do with that. He's completely defeated. Completely defeated. And in that moment, the tables were turned. And Satan was made a public spectacle. Jesus triumphed over the enemy by the cross. In Paul's day, Romans would have parades where the war hero would be up front, all of his soldiers in the middle, and at the back of the parade were all the publicly shamed prisoners of war they'd bring home. And through Christ's work on the cross, Paul's saying, hey, Satan's actually the back of the parade behind the church. The evil, unseen, demonic powers have not only been stripped of their rank by us living cross-shaped lives, not only is Satan stripped of his status, but he's also paraded around as as a humiliated prisoner in Christ's victory parade. And we are leading with Christ in that parade when we humbly absorb wrong. And, and as, we're, as, we're, as we're wounded, we dispense forgiveness like we're made of it. And like Paul says in Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but we overcome evil with good. We outrank and outstatus evil because we identify with the cross of Christ. You guys, it's Baptism Sunday as well today. See the baptism tank. Every first week of the month. We roll out the tank, fill it with water, even if no one signed up. You guys, no one signed up today. But if you've never been baptized, today is your day.
to say yes to the cross-shaped life of Christ and be part of the victory, Christ's victory parade. When you go into the water, you're saying, I die with Christ. My old pattern, my old operating system goes into the grave with Jesus' death. And my new life, I'm raised together with Christ where my sins are now wiped clean and the enemy is publicly shamed. I actually have no fear. Look, look at the next slide. This is what that means. Fear has no place in this church because at the cross, Jesus overcame all threat from enemies and all debt from sin. Threat and debt is gone. Yes and amen, I go into the water with Christ and I come up. Threat and debt has no power over me. And every, that's why everybody cheers. That's why Christians love baptism. We love to cheer for you when you say yes to the family of Jesus. Your relationship with God is restored and your relationships with hundreds of new family members, actually billions of new family members are restored. When you are baptized, be baptized today. Let's cheer you into the water. You may have not come with trunks or bathing suit, but we have shirts and towels. We're ready for you. At the end of worship, I will invite people to be baptized. And so, so also, not only does fear have no place because threat and debt are gone, but we cannot even practice the way of Jesus. We can't even do this Christian thing for acceptance anymore. You can't. You can't, you can't practice Christianity to be accepted by God. We can practice the way of Jesus because we're already accepted from acceptance. That's what this means. That's where Paul goes next. Look at this next verse. This is the rest of the text. Look at that first word. Everybody read the first word. Therefore, again, Brian was so great last week, he he taught us what therefore means. (laughs) So if you were here, what does therefore mean? It means everything I just said logically leads to what I'm about to say because the cross has canceled your sin debt and rendered the enemy inert just neutralized his power over your life. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. You don't belong here because you avoid a food or a drink or you observe a certain religious festival or new moon celebration or even Sabbath, how you Sabbath. These are all good things, it's good to practice the way of Jesus and to do the spiritual disciplines, but listen, let no one say you're out of the family of God because you don't practice like them. These are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. By the way, in ancient Colossae, they had a giant angel cult that had a cathedral built to Michael the archangel in the city. And so I guess angel worship was a big deal. That's somewhat synonymous to all the different spiritualities and the, um, you know, you can find, you know, crystal shops and things all over San Diego. So you can think of it that way. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So what's going on as Paul lands the plane here? What's he saying? It could seem like he's downgrading spiritual disciplines. Like you don't need to Sabbath, you don't need to practice the way of Jesus. Don't let anyone judge you. Is that what he's saying? I don't think that's what he's saying at all. Remember, because your sins are forgiven, because your sin debt is canceled, because Satan is publicly shamed at the cross, therefore, now you know what this means, when we Sabbath, we don't Sabbath for God's acceptance, but to enjoy the acceptance we already have in him. Everything we do as Christians is to be done from the acceptance we already have in him. God doesn't give extra credit. He already gives abundantly. This is something we need to preach to ourselves. Just like we were dead, now we're accepted and we can't get any extra credit. We have have the kingdom. We have it all. 
when we fast. Aaliyah announced we're going to do a week of prayer and fasting at the end of the month. We do that every Lent. When we fast, why do we fast? We don't do it for God's approval. We already have it. We fast to enjoy deeper intimacy with God, to orient our bodies in a longing posture toward the God who already approves of me. He already approves of me as his child, who he loves. When we observe any tradition, like Ash Wednesday, or I just said even Lent, some, for some of us, Lent is a new idea. In the tradition I grew up in, in non-denominational evangelical Bible church, Lent was like, give up Lent for Lent. Don't practice Lent. And, uh, and, and, and so, so why do we? Why, sh- why can we? Why, I should put it that way. Why can we practice Lent? We don't have to. We don't have to, to belong. But we do because there's literally tens of millions of brothers and sisters in Christ that are posturing their bodies in a specific way, in unity, saying, I'm going to give up something I don't need out of an acknowledgement that I need God more than anything, or I'm going to take up a practice. Maybe I'm going to finally start reading the Bible again, and I'm going to read the Bible daily for Lent because I'm going to deny myself of my previous morning routine because I recognize the love of God for me is so great that I want to be more aware of it. I already have his love. I already have his acceptance. These things are not to earn extra credit with God, but to enjoy the abundance we already have. You understand this. That's a very important dynamic. It's easy to slip out of that into a fear-based kind of works cycle. Um, so it, so here, here's where I'm going with this. This is where I'm ending. In chapter 3, verse 17, Paul's going to say, whatever you do, eating and drinking, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So he's very much into us doing what Jesus did, which is why Park Hill Church, we have a rule of life. Look at the next slide. This is how we, in our context, have chosen to chase after God. Why do we chase after God? Is it because he's running? <laughs> he's playing hard to get? No, he's given everything, and yet we forget. And so we remind our brains and our bodies and our muscles and our minds that God is good and he has given us everything and he's adopted us into his family. And these are ways we remind ourselves. These are ways we actively partner with him to become like him because we don't become like him by osmosis just by saying, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. But we practice the way of Jesus because we're fully forgiven, believing we can actually access more of his life as we participate with the church in these things. Notice the first four, Bible, silent solitude, fasting, Sabbath. Those are all inward to cultivate inner lives like Jesus. And then the bottom four, hospitality, generosity, community, and then vocation, which is when your work isn't just your career, but it's a calling that furthers the kingdom. Those are outward. So the top half are inward, the bottom half are outward, and this is kind of our church's rule of life. We want to grow in all eight areas because we believe Christ wants to form us in a specific way, and that way it's Jesus. But listen, we don't do any of this to get God's approval. We already have it. He's canceled your sin debt, wiped clean, publicly shamed Satan. That's already true about you. It's a fact. And so now we engage in these things because we already have his approval in our response. Our only logical, reasonable worship is the response together as the body. And that's where Paul ends. He says, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. You've already been qualified, and now your life is a response, a loving response. How do you know this? Because you were dead. You were dead. You can't practice the way of Jesus into life. Only God can raise you. You were dead, and there was nothing you could do to change it. You can't, you can't Sabbath your way into life. You can't go to church enough times your way into life. You can't read your Bible to achieve life. I was dead. God initiated my rescue. I trusted his rescue. He made me alive in Christ, period, full stop. Now, what does that mean? Because of that, my Sabbath rest becomes sweet connection with God, this God who's a living, breathing person who loves my soul. 
I love him too. And then my 10 minutes of bread Bible reading, by the way, if you haven't jumped on bread, it's a perfect time to jump on. Drew Enos just recorded a new week of audio bread guides on the podcast. You can get the journal and all of that. Jump in on Bible reading with the church. Now your 10 minutes of bread reading in the morning can become a life-giving gift of grace where you go to meet with the living God in friendship and intimacy. It's not a question of extra credit. It's just intimacy, you guys. And we grow as his body. Can you put that chunk of text back up again that was just up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at verse 19. He's speaking negatively about people who are trying to work. They're trying to work for God's approval. He says they've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported held together grows and God causes it to grow. What's he talking about there? The whole body is this body, the church. And Paul's telling us to hold tightly to the head who is Christ. The head is giving nourishment and blood flow and vision and oxygen to the rest of the body. And all of our ligaments and sinews are grabbing hold of the head with our whole hearts. This is a very graphic depiction of anatomy. Ligaments and sinews all going up to the head. And Paul has probably seen decapitations in that time. He's probably seen what a head looks like when it's disconnected from that body. Uh, and, and he's like, there's ligaments and sinews there. And so he's getting very graphic. And he's saying the whole body of Christ grips onto this Jesus out of relational love because he's gripped on us first. What does this mean? Well, for sure it means God doesn't just want individual worshipers. He wants a whole organic body. God wants a community. God wants a family doing this thing together, guided and nourished together by the head, Jesus Christ. This is Paul, another way of saying, in chapter three, he's gonna say it again, where he says, hey, Christ is your plural life. He's your head giving you life. So enjoy his life by growing in maturity together. So I just wanna say in closing, your spiritual maturity cannot happen apart from the leadership and centrality of Christ. And similarly, your maturity cannot happen as a Lone Ranger member (laughs) severed from the whole body of Christ. So here's the call, hopefully you see where I'm ending with this, is a call to community the community of Jesus. Paul ends this passage by reminding us that we are a body and every member is completely integral and needed in this body. So I wanna call us right now just to take a deep breath, maybe put your, we're gonna pray and, and put your feet on the ground and just open your hands if you're comfortable doing so and just invite the Holy Spirit to Invite the Holy Spirit to help you answer the following questions. What would it look like to rethink your commitment to the body? What is your commitment to the body? Do you have a commitment to your body? The body of Christ, I mean. The whole church, I mean. Your siblings in the room, your siblings all over the world. For starters, if you've never been baptized, today is the day to start a commitment to the body of Christ. Baptism, you, you notice something about baptism, no one's baptized alone. There's a reason for that. The body's welcoming a new member. Whether or not the church has formal membership, every church has membership. If you've never been baptized, your next step is to come and join the body. Grab onto the ligaments and sinews and receive life from the head and practice the way of Jesus, not for acceptance, but because you already are. And if you're already baptized, follower of Jesus, how's your community commitment? What's that look like? Ask the Holy Spirit, hey, God, what would it look like to bring my full vulnerable self to the table of Jesus with my family? Maybe you've been wounded by relationships in the church and you're like, I don't even know if vulnerability is on the table anymore. 
What would it look like to find healing? What would that vulnerable healing require? Maybe just more time. Maybe an intentional discussion. Maybe something else. What would vulnerability in the family of Jesus require? As you're just sitting and breathing and just present to the Spirit of God, I want to celebrate something with you. When we started Park Hill about 18 months after we started in 2019, there was about 25% of the Sunday gathering was in community groups. And now, five years in, there's like 80, 85% of the Sunday gathering is also in intimate community groups, to which I say, well done, church. Yeah, that's worth celebrating and rejoicing. And so in that spirit of, yes, something like 550, 580 people. And so in that spirit of celebration, how are you doing in that? Do you approach your community to practice the way of Jesus first and foremost? Maybe simply, do you listen before speaking or do you interrupt? Do you bring a word, an encouragement? Do you come prepared or do you come haphazardly? Just things to think about, just whatever it looks like to ask the Spirit, how is my commitment to community? What does it look like? And what are you calling me into? Holy Spirit, would you breathe on this moment? Breathe on our, our questions and our searchings and our longings for community and vulnerability and family because you're the head and you have breath for us. You have your Spirit. So breathe your power onto us and heal us from wounds in ways that are only miraculous. Help us to trust again. Help us to be trustworthy again. Have your way in your church, O great and glorious head of the body, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name.